Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. We're currently hurtling towards a unprecedented 2.5 to 2.7 degree warming, something within that. Humans haven't lived on a planet that warm ever. And even if at our current 1.2 degrees or 1.3, even if we are able to take things close to 1.5, there's going to be huge implications for how all of us live across the planet. And that's why we really need resilience. Hi, everyone. As we all feel the impacts of climate change more and more each year, the need to invest in climate resilience becomes more and more clear. The World Bank estimates that by 2050, there'll be more than 1 billion climate refugees. It's not about choosing between solutions to dramatically cut emissions and investments that help communities prepare for and bounce back from climate events. We need them both to limit human suffering as well as limit the geopolitical risks of destabilization caused by climate change. Today, we're joined by two leaders working to advance climate resilience. Nate Matthews is the CEO of the Global Resilience Partnership, an organization that supports research, policy, and innovation to advance the world's resilience ecosystem. And Joshua M. Ponson, the founder of the Green Africa Youth Organization and a director of the new Youth Climate Justice Fund. In this conversation, we talk about the state of the climate resilience field, inspiring examples of innovation, the case for investing in resilience, how young people, startups, and big companies are all contributing, how resilience will be present at the upcoming COP28 conference, and much more. Lots to learn about and think about in this one. Here we go. Nate and Joshua, welcome to Invested in Climate. So great to have you both here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Really nice to be here. Great. And where are each of you dialing in from? I'm coming in from London in the UK. I'm dialing in from Accra in Ghana. Very good. Well, thank you. We're on three different continents and really grateful to be in this conversation together. And I know you both travel a lot too. So thanks for working this into your travel schedules. Let's get started by learning a bit about each of you. Nate, will you kick us off, please? And just start off by telling us briefly about your background and the role that you're playing today. Sure. Thanks, Jason. So I have a background in geography and looking specifically at earth system science and the water energy food nexus, where I did my PhD and my master's degree was in environmental science and international development. Professionally, I've worked for about the last 20 years around the intersection of climate. So I was six years with the CGIR, which is a big organization that not a lot of people know about, but it has about 8,000 research scientists focused on agriculture. And previously, I was in the water sector 
And before that, in the private sector as an entrepreneur in my early 20s. And I'm Canadian, but have lived in about five or six different countries and now reside in London. And I'm currently with the CEO of the Global Resilience Partnership, which is a partnership of around 80 organizations working on climate resilience. Great. Thanks, Nate. We will definitely get into GRP and learn more about your organization. But let's turn to Joshua. Joshua, I know you wear several different hats and you're contributing to climate progress in several different ways. Tell us briefly about your background and what got you interested in climate work and what you're aiming to achieve right now. Thanks, Jason. My background is in disaster risk and adaptation. Growing up in Africa and in Ghana, climate impact was something that was very visible already. So that intrinsically took my interest and I did my studies in disaster management at that time, really knowing that the world will have to deal with cascading effects of climate change and social inequalities. I've supported several international organizations, including the Global Center on Adaptation, where I led the Thai youth program in there for, for a couple of years. I worked with the United Nations as a climate lead for the Secretary General's Youth and Boys Office. And through that, left both roles to really set up what we call another Youth Climate Justice Fund, which is a new fund that is providing unrestricted, core flexible funding to youth climate activists at the grassroots level. And that is because my first action when I wanted to work on climate was to set up an organization called the Green Africa Youth Organization, of which work across Africa with young people and linking that with the work of local government to raise ambition and to deliver solutions to climate problems locally and really rooting climate solutions in local communities. So that is my background. And through that work, really networking and also working with different stakeholders, including the Race to Resilience campaign and other international initiatives that are really focusing on how do we make sure that human security and their safety and security for people in the, in the face of extreme weather events and extreme uh, context of climate impacts. Great. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, Nate, for helping set the stage here. The organizations you both are representing are really doing fascinating and important work, and we'll spend most of our conversation hearing about those efforts. But first, let's talk about the problem. Nate, help us get grounded. What is climate resilience, and why is it something that we need to invest in and collaborate on? For us at the Global Resilience Partnership, resilience is really about having the capacities to live and develop with change. So it recognizes that we're living in a world of uncertainty, that we need to be able to learn how to thrive within this. So it's about adaptive capacities to absorb shocks and turbulence and avoid unpleasant tipping points and regime shifts. It's about capacities to prepare for and learn from and navigate uncertainty and surprise. It's about capacities for keeping options alive and creating space for innovation. And finally, it's about capacities for systemic transformation in the face of crisis and unsustainable development pathways and traps. I really think about resilience across these five essential attributes. So very simply, diversity. We need diverse sort of options within a world of uncertainty. We need redundancy built in, almost like an insurance product, if you will, but without it necessarily being insurance. Connectivity, learning how that we're in a hyper-connected world, inclusivity and equity, and then finally, adaptive learning. Those are the attributes of resilience that we work on within the Global Resilience Partnership. And I guess I would just add that we're currently hurtling towards a unprecedented 2.5 to 2.7 degree warming, something within that. Humans haven't lived on a planet that warm ever. And even if at our current 1.2 degrees or 1.3, even if we are able to take things close to 1.5, there's going to be huge implications for how 
all of us live across the planet. And that's why we really need resilience, is to understand how to live within that. So we're not trying to take away from the efforts on mitigation, which are so central, that we have to do that in lockstep with resilience. Thanks, Nate. For those that work close to climate work, we hear a lot about adaptation. Are resilience and adaptation really the same thing? Or how would you pull apart these concepts? I think it's a bit of an academic exercise to pull it apart. Sometimes resilience could be the language that people use and adaptation sometimes is the language of the UN, as was said by my mentor, the late Professor Salim Hook. I think that the challenge here is that you could really get into different ways of looking at them, but I I actually think they're the same things. One of the ways I kind of think about this is across the idea of persist, adapt, and transform. So we want people to not collapse in the face of shocks or stresses. We also want systems like the Antarctic ice sheet or the Amazon rainforest not to collapse. Adapt for me is a bit of a step to the left or step to the right of, of where we're currently headed. But I think transformation, which is central to how we view resilience at GRP, that's where it gets exciting. That's the novel ways of stewarding ecosystems, the novel ways of creating livelihoods. And I also think of resilience as sometimes embodying that sweet spot of encompassing mitigation benefits with resilience and adaptation benefits. I use them generally interchangeably though. Great. Well, for an academic exercise, you certainly made that clear and a bit easier to understand. So thanks. I appreciate that. Joshua, how about you? How would you describe the need for more resilience from your perspective? And how is the need for more resilience showing up in your community? I think that resilience is very essential for human development and for us to thrive as a society. And here I would wear the, I'll put myself in the shoes of the average uh, young person on the continent like Africa and really show how if we do not build resilience and do not invest in adaptation and resilience, what the cost of that looks like. I think in the face of extreme weather events, we are seeing a lot more younger people missing out on the opportunity to really develop themselves for the future that is ahead of them. Whether it be persistent droughts that last over years or cyclones that keep reoccurring or extreme floods that happen every year, this is really robbing young people of their chance to fit into the future that will make them thrive and succeed. And here it is intertwined with social injustices and a good sort of a bad old poverty, which has been a big issue across the world and being fought through different initiatives. But the lack of resilience means that we are missing out on the opportunity to advance healthcare systems for young people, education systems for young people, employment opportunities for young people, uh, personal and professional development for young people, and for a continent like Africa, which is very young. That is very scary that the opportunity for young people to be able to develop their own continent a few years from now, the same young people who are battling with these impacts and these issues. So the human cost of not adapting or not building resilience is really extreme and really defiles and destroys every other design wish that we have in fighting social injustices. And this is really the case for why investing in resilience is very critical and it's essential and it's something that shouldn't be argued or debated at all. Thanks, Joshua. I think your comments really underscored the idea that climate impacts are really intersectional and that it's not just about responding to extreme weather, but also about building the systems for education and for healthcare and other issues. And the need to respond to climate affects human health and affects human development and education and employment opportunities. So really interesting and grateful for your perspective. 
I know that you founded the organization Green Africa Youth Organization, and you also served as an adaptation fellow at the Global Center on Adaptation. So I'm really curious to hear about the resilience efforts that you see happening around you. And of those efforts, what's working best? Thanks for this question. I think that when the rise of the global sort of climate movement around its peak somewhere in 2019, championed by young people, I saw that moment as a time where it made me very excited to see that rise. But at the same time, it also made me sad because what I saw was that there were so many people within the movement who felt like their experience and everyday life was getting lost in translation when everything was really around mitigation and emission reduction. And as Nate already said, and not to repeat too much of that, mitigation is very essential and needed and really need to be championed. But it became a narrative where adaptation and resilience and building the structures that are needed for people to actually wake up the following day and have a decent life was completely getting lost. So this really fueled my sort of energy and enthusiasm to work with the Global Center on Adaptation to set up the Youth Adaptation Network, the Youth Adaptation Solutions Challenge, and a few other initiatives that really made young people who are on the frontline communities to really see that their everyday life and experiences is something that is super critical. That is something that is worth going on the street and campaigning for. And the push and the advocacy is not just climate, it's not just emission reduction, it's not just fossil fuel. It's also livelihoods. It's also just basic having a decent life. That was very, very important. Through that effort and working with the Green Africa Youth Organization, initiating projects like the Africa Climate Innovation Challenge, uh, with GRP is also a partner to that, among many others. We've seen young people really working with their communities, enrolling out several initiatives that are helping their community to better deal with some of these extreme weather events, but beyond the extreme weather events, also the everyday impacts of climate change. So being able to design better cooling system in urban centers where urban heat islands can increase temperatures up to about 3%, 3 degrees in, in certain places, or being able to develop seed bank system and composting facilities that allow for communities to be able to grow food during the low rainfall. Efforts like that are really demonstrating results. In addition to that, we are seeing the advocacy around young people working with their municipalities, not even at the very national level, but really working with their municipalities to understand what is our risk here. So being able to do the basic vulnerability assessment and risk assessment to understand the risk around them and how best to respond to that risk has been very important. Then one of the things that I find very important and impressive and really more needs to happen is understanding our communities, understanding what are the hazards, what are the exposure limits, and what do we do? And I think for a very long time, a lot of these knowledge, when translated into scientific terminologies, are held in the global north, which means that most of the national adaptation plans that were first drafted had a lot of consultants, foreign consultants helping local communities to do that. And it was also sad to see that, knowing that the people who live this life every day have a lot of knowledge and expertise that they could actually offer. And working with young people within the organization and these initiatives and building a generation that can really understand their impact, understand their risk, and work to develop solutions to that. And of course, uh, work with different allies to unlock the funding that is needed to implement and scale this, that is very, very critical. So these are the things that I'm seeing working, of course. When we talk about adaptation and resilience, we know that the finance conversation on that is very far behind. But I think seeing young people leading the charge 
on the local implementation and not getting lost in the big, sometimes the very macro level talk, which can really be very complicated, but focusing on their municipalities, their provinces, their towns, understanding the risks, the hazards, and making the assessment to know how to respond to that effectively using local resources and working with their local government offices to develop solutions have been very impressive. Fantastic. Thanks, Joshua. It's really exciting to hear about young people leading the charge and getting involved in developing and driving new solutions for resilience. I'm curious about areas of struggle. What are some of the biggest problems or gaps that you see when it comes to building resilience in your community? I think that some of the biggest struggle I've seen around resilience is when we take agency away from people. And I think this is probably the biggest challenge I see beyond the finance issue. That is really a huge one as well. I think that in many communities where I've seen dry spells or droughts or floods, flash floods, extreme heat, the idea that people who live in these communities are not the people who are to develop the solutions, but someone else needs to come from somewhere to do that, really take the agency away from them and put a lot of resources that can really empower them to drive these changes and put that resource in the hands of other people. And I think this is a very wrong way that building resilience and adaptation have been seen. I know that within my own organization and other organizations, we've really addressed this challenge by continuously putting the informal sector, informal workers, informal economic players in the room of decision-making so that they can really share their expertise and their input and get the resources they need to drive that and really reverse the approach that had been used in the past and still being used of having external entities come in and develop uh, solutions to local communities, particularly in the face of climate. The second part is the finance. I think that adaptation is really a question of survival, and I've said it in, in many events that building resilience is really what defines whether someone becomes a climate migrant, a refugee or not, and it depends on how fast we can move the resources to do that. And that is very essential. So the finance and being able to put the money in the hands of the right people is very important. And I think in adaptation, in the space of adaptation and resilience, though there is lack of funding, but I think the funding that exists had also not gone to the right people or had not been trusted in the hands of those who actually know their problems and know their issues much better. And that has been a flaw in the financial system uh, that operates around climate finance in general. So that the Youth Climate Justice Fund, part of our work is really how do we work with local communities to build infrastructure that is needed for them to be able to hold money and manage money and use money in the way that makes sense to them. And I think one of the things I said in the beginning, which you rightfully said that the way I see resilience is really around intersectionality, because being able to have a better health insurance is a climate resilience. And though that could be seen as a health, uh, of course, as a health uh, intervention as well. But being able to work with communities for them to define what is most relevant to them in building their resilience is very, very essential. And not the other way around where the financial system and even the philanthropic system set a strategy and expect that communities will follow their strategy instead of the other way around. So these are some of the hindrances we see and within the initiatives that involve in the Youth Climate Justice Fund and the Green Africa Youth Organization really working hard to set the narrative right and put in place structures that empower communities to be able to engage better, but also working with the different intergovernmental organizations and philanthropic actors to understand what it means for uh, grassroots communities, what resilience means to them, and why they need to be trusted as compared to some intermediary consultants. 
Joshua, thank you for that. And I'm actually going to repeat one of your statements because I found it to be really powerful. And I think it's worth just saying again that climate resilience decides whether or not someone becomes a climate refugee or not. It's a really powerful idea. Nate, your organization has a global focus, and I'm sure the issues that Joshua described are ones that you see playing out all over the world. Tell us a bit about GRP and the role you play with helping address the needs like those Joshua mentioned. The GRP is a founding signatory of the locally-led adaptation principles. And this is why working with Joshua and doing this podcast with him is so aligned, because those principles really highlight the importance of locally-led adaptation and the agency that Joshua just mentioned. We, as a secretariat, are small. We're about 25 people. We don't have plans for big growth because we recognize that if we start to grow larger, then we start to divert money away from the partners who need it and those locally-led efforts. And that's antithesis to the idea of those principles. And we're spread across 14 countries. We are a partnership of around 80 organizations, and we work across three areas. So it's just three intertwined areas. It's just simply innovation, knowledge, and policy. So our innovation work is our work on the ground, supporting and scaling innovation. Our knowledge work is particularly focused on advancing resilience measurement and evidence, because we see that as key to unlocking further investment. And we also do research in that space as well on how to build resilience in conflict-prone and fragile regions, because we know that 80% of the world's poor are estimated to be in conflict-prone or fragile regions by 2030. And then we also do a lot of work in the policy space. So how are we engaging both private sector policy and policy at multilaterals and others to ensure that resilience is an equal partner with mitigation? Because given the sort of transitions that we're facing ahead, there's real risk that mitigation efforts could be completely derailed by a lack of investment in resilience and adaptation. So we push on many levels to ensure that resilience, that more effort, action, and investment will go into adaptation and resilience. Nate, if you don't mind, I'd actually love to hear more about that last point, that mitigation efforts could actually be derailed by a lack of investment in resilience. Tell us more. When we think about all the efforts and all the focus on net zero, I mean, I think this is central, but if we're not investing in resilience, if we're not finding ways for people and communities, and especially those most impacted by climate, women and youth, to be able to not only persist, but thrive within this changed climate, then the mitigation efforts could be completely derailed. So we have to understand that a sole focus on net zero will not bring us to a climate secure world. We know right now where we're headed is above 1.5 degrees. And I hope that we can keep it or bring it back down to 1.5 degrees. But that's still a really changed world. Even at 1.5 degrees, we're saying goodbye to 99% of coral reefs, for example. And there's huge implications across nature and climate that are deeply intertwined. And if we don't have this resilience building as an equal partner of mitigation, then I think we're going to be in big trouble. Nate, I'd love to go deeper into the idea of the investment case for resilience. And it's a topic that I believe you actually hosted a webinar on earlier today. Obviously, we can't summarize the entire discussion that you hosted, but give us a headline or two that might help any of our listeners be able to better advocate for investing in resilience. We see this as really central. So how are we getting more money, especially down to the local level, 
on adaptation and resilience. And so the Boston Consulting Group is leading a report that we're a part of at the moment with USAID that looks at the investment case for resilience in emerging markets and developing economies. And part of the webinar that we hosted today was to highlight some of the key features within that. And I think it can be summarized across a few features. So first is that finance measures that protect private assets, supply chains, and operations are essential. So we really need to look at how companies are protecting their value at risk. But this also has a broader knock-on positive effect for communities, economies, and ecosystems in which they operate. So we really need that component of resilience to be emphasized. There's also an increasing investment case within for adaptation and resilience solutions. There's an emerging pipeline of early and late stage adaptation and resilience investment opportunities across food, energy, health, and water. And these are really delivering high value multiples, especially in emerging markets and developing economies. And so given this inevitability of mounting physical climate impacts, this nascent market is really posed for growth. And we're excited about that. And we want to help support that. And then I think in addition, apart from the fact that we're going to need adaptation and resilience is so central to be able to create a future for the whole planet. It's this idea that participating in financing adaptation resilience measures are really participating in shared assets and systems. So there are a number of entry points to directly protect private assets and unlock new revenue streams for both the public and private sector to get involved. I think this is where we see because this is such a new market, but it's got to grow fast. I firmly believe that we're going to have to go through the fastest economic transition that we've ever experienced on earth if we are to keep the planet within a state where humanity can live and thrive. And to do that, we need public-private partnerships. So we need de-risking from the public sector, but we also need more investment and more attention focused on resilience and adaptation from the private sector. And that's really shifting. I'm in conversations today with a number of private sector partners that were unimaginable four or five years ago. I hope it shifts fast enough. Thanks, Nate. Joshua, let's turn to you and curious, how would you build on this? From your vantage point, what is the investment case for supporting resilience efforts, not just from a humanitarian or human development standpoint, but also in terms of the ROI of the investments? Thanks for that. And Nate's really fantastic points there. I think when I look at the context of, and I'm very global south biased, so I'm just going to keep referencing the global south regions and particularly Africa. But if I look at a continent like this, where it's an emerging economy in many countries, there is good investments coming in, but to sustain those investments and to make sure that the return on investment on those traditional ones are worthwhile, you need to adapt and you need to build resilience. It's really straightforward like that. So if you look at the level of coastal erosion that could have happened for coastal cities where most investments are aggregated, that is a huge risk. So that sort of resilience is needed to protect those investments. If we think of the workforce and we look at the current, even the current rate of migration that is happening on the continent, driven by climate and extreme weather events, that brings a lot of question marks to play in terms of the workforce that be available to operate in sensitive ecosystems and locations. So that is also very, very important. So for me, I think that when I look at a very traditional business perspective, the more we invest across the continent, real estate is something that is very vibrant. There are still a lot of manufacturing entities coming in, FMCGs as an economy that is still booming here. And all of that could really go down to the drain if resilience is not built and if the critical infrastructure that fuels these economies or these businesses are not protected. 
And we've seen that in situations where particularly the hydrological risk, so mostly when it comes to flooding and cyclones, how that affects critical infrastructure that is not only serving communities, but also serving these businesses. So telecom, communication services, road infrastructure. So these are all very essential and, and are needed and could really reverse development in our countries, but not just development, also really preventing investors to really cash out on their investment. So I think this presents a lot of a lot of concrete evidence for why businesses and the private sector really should take a critical interest in supporting adaptation, investing in adaptation. In many cases, I've had people say that we need to de-risk, we need to make it worthwhile, and we need to you know, make the numbers right. But the reality is that the numbers cannot be right if you compare that to mitigation, because we are not talking about gigatons and tons of CO2 here, right? So if you want to have that clear calculation, you're not going to have that. And that is the plain truth. I don't think that we should make adaptation really about that narrative of a simple mathematics of one plus one is equal to two. I think it's really about protecting not just livelihood and not just human security, but also protecting the development of society, which include businesses and every society that really develops requires a lot of infrastructure to be able to do that. And those infrastructure are all threatened if we do not adapt. So while we might not be able to calculate exactly how investment into adaptation might result in how many X amount of money, and some people have figured out the math and they are are throwing it around. But I think that that narrative itself, though is good, but I think that it shouldn't be about that. It should really be about how do we thrive and how do we survive and how do we excel as humanity in all sectors. So in human life, as, as protecting life and making sure people have the resources they need, but also how do we thrive? How do we make businesses thrive? How do we make local businesses also thrive? How do we make local entrepreneurs survive? How do we make sure there's infrastructure that set populations and people and make sure that they are able to grow? So I think these are the elements that are very essential. And if you put all of that together, it presents a very good narrative why businesses should be on board for adaptation and not necessarily focusing it solely on the emission cost or the reduction of emission. But I think that every business requires a good level of infrastructure that is safe, secure, and not washed away with floods or not damaged due to extreme heat or have the workforce to be able to manage that. And I think that this is the reality that we'll be facing. If we look at the level of heat across the continent, particularly the Sahelian areas, if we look at the extreme weather events when it comes to hydrological events as well, it's very obvious that this will keep increasing even if we meet our 1.5 degrees target, which almost is almost missed. So obviously, we really do not have a choice. We need to adapt. We need to build resilience. And that is needed to protect all existing investment and new investments that are going to be made. Thanks, Joshua. I think you provide some really tangible and clear examples that broke this down and made it really accessible and easier to understand. Nate, you recently ran an open innovation challenge called the Resilience Agriculture Innovations for Nature, or RAIN, challenge. Before we get into hearing about some of the solutions, tell us at a high level about what you aim to achieve and how the challenge went. This was our, I think, our fifth or sixth challenge like this that we've run. And I think touching on the great points made by Joshua, I think one is that there's this need to really when you're investing in resilience, to understand that you're really investing in supporting the system. So any types of challenges that we've run in the past is really about engaging in recognizing that a healthy environment is the foundation of a healthy society, which is the foundation of a healthy economy. So we want to support investments 
support entrepreneurs, support local innovators to build resilience and recognizing that the benefits from this are much more than monetary, as Joshua mentioned. I think there's another key point here is that we're really focused within GRP on flipping the risk profile of emerging markets and developing economies when it comes to resilience innovations. So a lot of times companies or funds or others will look at a country, be it in Africa, Southeast Asia, or even South America, and say, oh, well, the risk of investing in there is high. So we would need a very, very high return to be able to justify putting capital into that market. But what we've shown time and time again through these challenges and the work with our partners is that there are returns to be made. There are tons of innovation happening. I was in Kenya just last week, and it's just the hotbed of innovation at the moment. Nairobi is really booming, as many cities and countries in Africa are. And we've also shown that when we do loan products, for example, for people on the ground in these places, their default rates are much lower than what you would experience in the UK or Canada, where I'm from, or the US. There's a really fantastic opportunities for businesses to look at adaptation and resilience. And that's what we're really trying to do, are trying to create a race. We don't mind who wins that race, but we want to create a race around building, supporting resilience innovations. Nate, there were a couple of solutions from the challenge that caught my eye. One uses AI to support beehives in agroforestry. And another is called the One Farmer Project out of the Artificial Intelligence Center of Excellence from Kenya another interesting use case of AI. would love to hear about those innovations and how you see AI showing up in resilience. So we're seeing a lot of interest in AI. Sometimes it's just used as a buzzword just to make projects appear to be more attractive. But in these two cases, I think there's some really interesting innovations coming out where they're using the internet of things and artificial intelligence to monitor bee behavior as impacted by environmental disturbances that prevent them from acting as agents of pollinations. So the community owners of these lands provide a rental space for the beehives. They practice sustainable farming. And in return of the improved crop production supported by the pollination of bees. And the bees are then leased to other community owners, such as women or youth, and who don't own the land. And then eventually the ownership of those beehives are transferred to them. So the IoT technology helps to collect environmental data and really improve the sustainability and effectiveness of farming. The other one you mentioned is also quite interesting. So this project uses real-time data using IoT devices to help with predictive analysis and essentially a sort of digitized farmer extension. So it helps mitigate losses, boost production amidst changing climate. It's really interesting to see the way that mobile technology, which is ubiquitous across most of Africa, can be used to help get farmers more data to drive better decisions and then drive value for their industry. Great. Joshua, you're surely also surrounded by innovative efforts. What sort of innovation is most exciting or encouraging to you in this moment? I think some of the most exciting innovations I see are the ones that are really community-led. And I find those models very interesting because it delivers a profit to community people within the community and really moves away from the idea of a business, running a business and owning profit and holding the profit as a business. And I think there are two examples that are very exciting. And one is a community-led composting facility, probably the biggest in West Africa here in Ghana, which we funded at a very early stage back in 2019 and currently producing compost, selling it to farmers, but really designing a way that the profits of that 
composting facility also goes into community development. So almost like a social enterprise, but still very keen on making profit and using that profit to support community development. And the reason why that is very important and as a very good example is because it makes every single community member feel like a stakeholder in this business. When this initiative started, the model itself was questioned a lot in terms of governance structures and how it's going to succeed. And after working through it since 2019, really get into a state where it's really attracting a lot of support and also being referenced as a case study and even used as an example to drive zero waste agenda in areas where better waste management also build resilience against flooding or flood risk. That has been a very great example that I've seen. And then the second example which I've seen, which I really find fascinating, is alternative building materials that increase cooling, but also reduces uh, the use of cement, which is very carbon intense. And when we heard the Africa Climate Innovation Challenge in Nairobi, that was one of the innovations that was presented and received a cash prize for the program and really keeping in touch with the innovator and working with him together with a few other partners to further develop this because heat is sort of one of the biggest issues we have in terms of climate risk. But instead of, of course, finding solutions that are still very energy intense, but integrating that into a building material and offering that solution, which is also to some extent indigenous and bringing back that indigenous element and also reminding the sector that some of these solutions are going to come from indigenous knowledge and traditional practices and it will have to be taken and remodeled or improved in a way that it can be practiced at scale in the context of cities and urban centers that make it very, very interesting to me because the combination of indigenous knowledge combining that with modern science and enterprise models. So these are some of the innovations we are seeing and we are constantly also providing making ourselves available for other activists who identify through entrepreneurship to be able to get in touch with us to discuss how we can further support the ideas. Great. Thank you, Joshua. We've been speaking mostly about the role of governments, of investors, and of startups, but big companies have a role to play too. Nate, you've been working with the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID for short as it's called, on the PREPARE call to action for private sector companies to invest in resilience in partner countries. About a year has passed since the call to action was issued at COP27, and I imagine that you're now off to COP28 with some updates to share. I wanted to get a sense of the type of responses that you've seen, and I noticed that MasterCard has a list of impressive commitments, including a partnership to accelerate innovative fintech solutions for vulnerable households and enterprises, a new climate-smart product innovation hub, a commitment to bringing 30 million smallholder farms onto a digital platform to sell their produce, and the Priceless Planet Coalition to restore 100 million trees. It's great to see at least as one example of a company investing in resilience. What else have you seen result from this call to action, and what are some of the next steps with it? We're really excited to be the implementing partner for this call to action with USAID and the State Department, and specifically the Special Envoy for Climate. It's led by the principals Samantha Power and John Kerry, and we wanted to be a part of this and we helped initiate it because we saw a role for large company private sector leadership and adaptation and resilience, recognizing that we want to support innovation on the ground, but we also need innovation and support on resilience and adaptation across the board, across scales. And we've had a large number of companies respond to this now. Our aim isn't to grow it into a huge call to action, but actually to find ways to 
keep the community here and, and really represent a group of private sector leaders on adaptation and resilience? How can we coordinate their efforts? How can we help them with their resilience and evidence? How can we ground their work in locally led adaptation principles? So you mentioned some great commitments from the likes of MasterCard. We have other ones like McCormick and Company, the biggest spice producer in the world that's investing in resilience of over 30,000 of their farmers across their supply chain, 100% sustainable sourcing for their top five branded ingredients by 2025. And then Pegasus Capital Advisors, that's mobilizing more than 500 million to invest in adaptation and resilience strategies. Or Pula, which is increasing insurance coverage to 100 million smallholder farmers across sub-Saharan Africa. So there's a whole host of fantastic commitments from across the companies and a bunch of new ones that we'll be launching at COP28. So watch this space. Nate, Joshua, I see that you're both participating in the Resilience Hub at COP28, the UN Climate Conference coming up soon in Dubai. I'd love to get a sense of how resilience will be present at COP and what you're hoping to accomplish this year. So for COP28, first of all, we really want to make sure that Communities and people who are leading the solutions on the ground are having a space to connect with each other and be able to connect with decision makers and to feed into the international conversation and the processes there, particularly the negotiations. So we are delivering different trainings and working with different country delegations to make sure that they onboard a few young people, but also folks who work in the informal economy and are affected by climate, whether it be farmers or women and those who work on specific issues, health included, are able to form part of the delegation going to COP. So this is very essential to us, and I think it's really to give people who have historically not had access to decision-making to be able to work alongside decision-makers, both in the country, but also in the region, but also at the international space. So that is something that Green Africa Youth Organization is actively pushing. In addition to that, we're really working very closely through the Youth Climate Justice Fund to bring the philanthropic community together to rally them around adaptation and resilience. I think that philanthropic funding going to climate is currently at 2%. We're hoping that that would increase, but only 0.76 of that money goes to grassroots and locally led organizations in the global south. So what we've done with the Youth Climate Justice Fund and a few others is really working with philanthropic entities who are beginning to step into climate or those who are already working on climate to really advocate and push for a change in where philanthropic money goes, but also really drift them a bit towards adaptation and resilience and make sure that they can commit more funding to this course. Already at the New York Climate Action Week, uh, Climate Works launched a new adaptation initiative, and we know that a few other climate funders who are beginning to think about that. Our role at COP is to make sure that we are bringing the right stakeholders together in, into one space to dialogue around this to see increased funding, but also how do we make sure that the funding that is coming into this space can reach the, the groups and the organizations and people that really need it the most. And then it's accompanied with the right level of capacity development that is required to achieve success and to reach a certain level of theory of change when it comes to resilience implementation. So this is where we are. And we would be also working closely with the Global Resilience Partnership on a few other things, really making sure that the informal sector, the, the frontline communities, and those who actually are able to do more with less are having the right space and avenue at COP to bring their agency forward, not just on advocacy, but also to really part away on how adaptation and resilience should be fronted and championed. Thank you, Joshua. And best of luck to you and to your teams at COP. Thank you. Nate, 
over to you to take us home. Tell us what you see happening at COP and also what you're looking for in the coming year for GRP. Thanks. I can sometimes get a little bit cynical about the value of these big conferences where we have people flying from all over the world into a space to talk about climate and where some of the speeches are already well-baked before you get there. But we've initiated the Resilience Hub with others three years ago to really change that and to have it as a focal point for resilience and adaptation at the COP. It's the home for many community organizations. It's completely hybrid, so it breaks down that inaccessibility of COP. So you can tune in, you can listen to and participate in the sessions all online. And it's turned out to be a huge success. We regularly get 10,000 plus visitors through heads of state, youth leaders, and CEOs. My ambition and the reason why we put so much effort into the hub is really just to simply increase the investment and action into adaptation resilience. I think that the estimates are that we'll need up to $300 billion a year by 2030. We're currently at around $60 billion, and only 2% of that is tracked from the private sector. So we have this huge gap. And we bring the Resilience Hub to make sure that resilience and adaptation are not forgotten within the COP process that is largely mitigation focused. And it's, as I say, it's proved really successful. It's a big lift for us as a small organization. We have other managing partners that help out a lot, but it's really important. I would encourage your listeners to tune in online to some of the great sessions there. Great. Nate, Joshua, thank you so much for your time today. Best of luck with all the important work that you're doing. Really grateful for this conversation. Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial accounting or legal advice. Thanks again. 